Oh, yes. Somebody's yes. screaming obscenities at me at the airport. Yep. <laughs> We're going to have oh, a God. big sign and... <laughs> oh man, what did we sign up for? I'll just, I'll, we'll just be crossing the street in Portland, and somebody will be screaming obscenities at us again, and be just like, "Man, this guy is just..." <laughs> oh no, I have actually told all um, 300 people that I know what you look like, and they're all gonna try and crack jokes and get you to laugh. That's their new goal in life. Man from Lang, my wife, my wife is like, "What is, what is Man from Lang's real name?" I, I always hear you because. Nathan and I are talking, and we'll talk about you, and we'll say we'll call you Man from Lang. And she's like, "You guys always just call him Man from Lang. Like, what is his real name?" <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have a real name. That's his actual name. Yeah, yeah, literally. <laughs> have you not seen the artwork? <laughs> ah, well, well. Speaking of artwork, uh, welcome everyone to another episode of Beyond the Veil. The series on the great old ones where we interview writers, game designers, artists, and other prominent members of the community of the Cthulhu gaming world. And today we are joined by a man whose career is a bit of a melange of all of these things. He currently works as a writer and artist for Delta Green and Arc Dream Publishing. Dennis Detwiller, welcome. Hi, how are you guys doing? Welcome, Dennis. Is it Detwiller or Detweiler? Oh, you know, we're, we're, we're easy on that front. Um, it's usually Detwiller, but... Uh, I've heard Detweiler, and it's spelled like 33 different ways. But we're all related. You find a Detweiler, or a Detweiler, or a Det, you know, 1L, that's us too. Just to... I was about to say, I grew up in Peoria, Illinois, and it was Detweiler Park, so it's going to be hard to switch it. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, that's our family. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for, for coming on, Dennis. Uh, it's very awesome for you to join us. No problem. Um, I wanted to, to ask you uh, briefly about how you got started in gaming. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in New York City. Uh, I was a professional artist from when I was about 15 or 16. Um, so I, I did um, art for Marvel and DC and stuff like that. And then I um, uh, got a scholarship to go to art school. Uh, and while uh, in art school, I dated a woman who lived in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And I would take the train out there, and one day I wandered into a gaming store, um, and I saw The Unspeakable Oath, um, issue three of The Unspeakable Oath. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. Um, and I immediately wrote them and said, I want to do art. And that's kind of how, that's my first gaming job. But I've been playing role-playing games since 1978, I want to say, with D&D, &D, and um, Call of Cthulhu in 1985. Um, so yeah, I mean... Um, I loved it for a long time, and then I saw a way in, and uh, I'm really glad I took that jump and bugged John Tynes. I, I read on Wikipedia, the most trusted source on the internet, that you volunteered initially <laughs> for, for the job. Yeah, oh yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, um, to, be, to be clear, yeah, the Unspeakable Oath was, um, you know, a no-money operation. Um, it was very different than, than now. Like... Seriously, now, if I wanted to put out an entire 128-page gaming book, I could do everything myself and press a button and there'd be a POD copy of it in my mailbox in two weeks. Um, but in 1991, <laughs> it was like five people to put together a zine, and then you had to staple it and all this other kind of stuff. It took forever. Um, the computer tech just wasn't there. So how did you come into the world of Lovecraft? Oh, I, you know... I. I read, um, I think um, the first horror novel I ever read was um, Salem's Lot when I was about nine or ten. Uh, and it mentioned 
um, it has some Lovecraftian mentions in there, and then King mentions it in the foreword. Um, so I picked up um, the original Del Rey black and white cover with the red highlight, cool paint with Stephen Whalen paintings that were just awesome. Uh, at the Mountains of Madness, and I read At the Mountains of Madness, and I was like, "This is it. This is this is what I want to do. I don't know how, but I'm going to make this a thing I do." Um, and you know, I absorbed everything Lovecraft wrote. Um, and you know, I have to say, I know a lot of people disagree with me. I'm not a huge fan of his writing. I'm a huge fan of his conceptualization and his ideas. Um, his writing is somewhat stulted, I'll say. Yeah, I would agree, especially yeah. his earlier works. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite clear he's having a rough time kind of getting across what he wants, but his concepts are so strong that they've, you know, they're still around today and his name is still associated with them. So he did something right. Definitely. So you, so then after you uh, went to volunteer for this unspeakable oath, you moved, uh, was it to Washington for the Pigeon yeah. House? The, the... No, um, so the first thing I did was, uh, while well, I was running out of money in New York, um, so living as a freelance artist in New York was not an easy thing to do. Um, so uh, what I did was I packed up everything and moved to Columbia, Missouri, which is where Pagan Publishing was at the time. John was still going to college, I think. Um, so it was John, Blair Reynolds, uh, Chris Klepak, um, John Crow, Brian Appleton, all the classic Pagan heads. Uh, and I, we all lived in a house, basically. Um, and ran Pagan Publishing and did, you know, books like The Golden Dawn and uh, Walker in the Wastes and stuff like that. Um, but what I found was um, being paid New York wages for art and living in Missouri, I could live there forever. I could literally eat out every night and be fine. Cover my rent. It was like <laughs> in, in Columbia, Missouri, it was like pennies on the dollar to New York. Um, so I really liked it. But then uh, Wizards of the Coast kind of blew up and um, I had started doing magic cards for them, painting them um, before magic was even a thing. It's basically um, they were friends of ours and I did all this stuff as a favor and suddenly started paying really well. So they invited us all out to Washington and basically said, if you move out to Washington, you can have a job. So me and John and, and pretty much all the other pagans loaded up a truck and went out to Seattle. Wow, that's really cool. Because that was the first mention of your name that I had seen was playing Magic when I was a kid. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember I remember there was one card that you had drawn or you had done art for that was like a, a lycanthrope where yeah. it was like a guy's... Oh, God, that was so cool. Yeah, Greater Werewolf. Yeah, that was... Yep. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was fun. Um, and those those cards, you know, paid for my first house. Those cards were amazing. Wizards was an incredible company and their royalty scheme and the way they paid the artists was just great back then. So you moved to Washington and started kind of doing work for Wizards of the Coast with the rest of Pagan Publishing. Um, so what happened What happened from there? Well, me and John and, uh, well, first John and Unspeakable Oath 7, John said, oh, I have this idea for, uh, we, oh, I gotta go back. We, we used to play Mask of Nero Thotep and uh, we'd die all the time, right? Of course. Um, like our characters would just get smoked continuously and you'd have to bring in a new character and it, you'd have to have some reason to bring in that new character and it got to the point where we were literally recruiting like waiters out of street cafes in <laughs> Mastamero Thotep and Cairo like you want to come fight a dark cult with us waiter you know because we couldn't come up with a good story so John was like oh I'm going to make this government conspiracy that can replace agents you know if, if you die hunting Yarl Thotep they're going to send two more in or whatever 
And that's where Delta Green kind of came from. And um, uh, he came up with it in Unspeakable Oath 7, I think. And from there, I just went ape. I, I started writing up a bunch of UFO stuff because uh, I love UFO stuff. And I have since the 70s. Um, Scott Glancy was kind of a pen pal and he's a government guy. So he started writing up kind of real world history and we started putting that all together. Um, and, uh, that's the, the pagan house as it was known in, in Seattle. <laughs> um, we all just worked a day job mostly. And then at night or in the afternoons, whenever we had free time, we'd work on Delta Green and, uh, other bigger books like uh, Realm of Shadows and things like that. Um, so, you know, it was a very, it was a, I think Ken Height called us, it was a frat house for serial killers was a decent description. <laughs> <laughs> I heard everybody had a gun in the pagan house and more than one. Not gun. me. Not you? I was unarmed. <laughs> yeah, I was fully, fully unarmed the entire time. Um, but, you know, I never felt wanting. I could have run into any room and grabbed half a dozen firearms. <laughs> I heard Blair would walk around inside the house with a holster on. Uh, that's totally true. Yeah, Blair was... <laughs> Blair is Blair, right? Um, uh, you know, he, he had his own... He marched to his own drum. He lived he lived with us in the, the third pagan house in Seattle for a bit. Um, so we lived... Initially, we lived on 49th Street near a pub, which is where Delta Green was kind of born. We sat in the pub and yelled at each other and came up with... The, the layout and the design and uh, and then we moved into the basement of the place across the street from one of Ted Bundy's victims that's why it was super famous is the, the sorority house was like 50 feet from us and then we moved to the gray house where Scott still lives I think um, and that's where everybody kind of got together Scott moved in uh, Blair John me John Crow yeah crazy uh, fantastic. Hey, Dennis, just real quick. Um, I know we had covered this and then ran from it um, like someone looking into the maw of chaos. Um, just real quick, what what are your views on cooking unicorns? Do you have any? Do you have any per- <laughs> well, I, st- I still get hate mail about I, I painted a card called Feast of the Unicorn. Well, OK, thank you. That was a doppelganger check part two. You're good. You're good. We're good. <laughs> Yeah, I still I still get hate mail. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah it's a little, so it's a little you weird. Guys came up with. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> um, you guys came up with an awesome concept with Delta Green. Uh, it's quickly become. I didn't really learn about it until recently, but it's quickly become my favorite role playing game. Oh, uh, thanks. So great work with that. Thank you. Um, so, you you created the night floors. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How that came about? Yeah. Uh, well, um, John was writing this amazingly cool Haster Mythos chapter for Delta Green Countdown. And Delta Green Countdown was the follow-up to the original Delta Green book. And it was, it became this monstrous nightmare book that took six or seven years to finish. And that just means I had a lot of these manuscripts floating around. So when I read John's chapter, I was like, oh, I'm going to write a scenario for this. And I wrote the, the... I wrote a scenario that would upset people in a surreal way, not in a, you know, the monster launches out of the wall and gobbles everybody up Lovecraftian way. And uh, I knew I had won when I ran it for the group. I ran it for John and Blair Reynolds and John Crow and 
And Blair Reynolds got so upset, he just stood up and walked away from the table at one point. He was just like, nope, nope, nope. He got all freaked out and he <laughs> left the room and then he came back later and said, is that bullshit over? Is that? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, for now, you know, and he sat down and played for a little bit more and they got upset again and <laughs> kept getting creeped out. And I was like, okay, I'm doing, I'm doing well. I'm creeping Blair out. That's a, that's a gold star for me. Um, and I think specifically it was in a, in a portion of the scenario, there's a, a small bathroom and you see a man carrying a, like a suitcase walk horizontally through the bathroom, which doesn't have space for him to walk at a brisk pace. And he, I just did, I just described that and Blair was like, fuck this, I'm leaving. Um, he got really creeped out. He was, he was into that shining kind of, I love, I love the shining surreal feel. So I, I wrote night floors to be that. And my new campaign, uh, the first campaign for Delta Green, really, um, is called Impossible Landscapes, and it's built around Night Floors is the first scenario. Um, there are five scenarios, um, and they're all interconnected. Um, like, uh, you know, it's Delta Green versus the King in Yellow, and it's it's very, very weird and dark and huge. It's about the size of the uh, oh, wow. Handler's Guide. Yeah, right the now. Handler's Guide is huge. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, for reference, it's about, like, what, 500-ish pages? Uh, no, I don't know. I don't, you know, I, I couldn't tell you. Um, me and Shane blacked out somewhere <laughs> in the in the 220-page range. Uh, but uh, who, who orchestrated this uh, get-together with Dennis, by the way? Who's the one who um, contacted him and asked if he wanted to be on the show? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I believe because I because we're not worthy. Does everybody realize that? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to point no, that this out. Is, this is this is fun. I'm having a. It's I'm a just good, the I'm good, just the demon in the room. Okay, I'm just <laughs> it's saying. Way, it's a good way to start the the Mondays. So. Well, I I understand from Dennis that if this uh, if this podcast of ours is to go anywhere, we all need to move to Portland and live in one house together. So yes. yeah, well, actually, that you know that I will say that really helped. That really did help. We hated each other at certain points. I think the first year we forgot to get heating oil for the house. So it was like, it was pretty much like oh, the thing. Oh my God. You know, you'd come home and you'd see plumes of smoke from everybody's breath and they're all wearing giant parkas and you're all like ready. And flamethrowers yeah, yeah. well, and dogs are yeah, dead. And It was totally, um, it was, no one, no one trusts each other anymore. Yeah. It was very much <laughs> like that. Um, so yeah, but you know, living together um, breeds some really odd interactions, and, and you know, it gives birth to some really cool shit. Like, um, I feel you. I'm married. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, but like with John, um, uh, me and John Tynes, you know, we used to just shoot the shit from like I don't know, midnight to two in the morning, and uh, some of the coolest Delta Green shit just rose out of us bouncing ideas off each other. Um, so yeah, it, it helps. Um, I heard about uh, a, a tub of rice vinegar water that you guys found that had turned like brownish or yellowish. Oh yeah, you guys had to go take to the dump. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a, there was a lot of craziness. I mean, we had um, I'm trying to think of some of the stories. We had the beer fridge. We had oh, Spooge the cat. You guys don't know about Spooge. No, go uh, on. We had a we had, we had a giant Maine Coon cat that came with us from Missouri. John's cat, Spoochhead, and we loved this cat. He was awesome. He used to sit on the couch like a person. Like I came in one day and he's just he, they you know Maine Coon are like giant cats, so he was just propped up on the couch sitting like a person with his arm on the armrest watching television, like the TV was on, 
And when I came in the door, he turned around to like look who came in the door, and he was like, "Hey," <laughs> and then went back to watching television. And I just left him there, like it was totally normal. And uh, you know, he he lived there. I think he he lived in, he died in the house when he was I don't know six or seven. But um, just a great cat. We had uh, Glancy had a half dozen other cats. The place always stunk like cat pee. There were pistols everywhere. You know, it was, it was a weird place. Was this the inspiration for Operation Night Floors, this actual scenario? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I couldn't really say at that time. Um, most of Night Floors, you know, uh, the inspiration for Night Floors for me is I grew up in New York City in the 70s, and it's just not a nice place. Uh, it's still not a nice place. It's it's a weird place. It, it eats people up. And um, I grew up in, you know, a lot of high-rises, a lot of overpainted stairwells with bad lighting, a lot of endless cubbyhole-like basements and apartment buildings you rent. And um, I just find those places really creepy. So that's kind of what I wanted to write. So we did a we did a playthrough of Night Floors uh, for the podcast. And we just released the second episode today. Oh, cool. Out of three episodes. Nice. And, yeah, it, it was such a great adventure. I had to, had to run it again for my regular RPG gaming group. Uh, and it played so different both times. I mean, there's so many different yeah, little things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an unusual scenario. So whenever I write a, a, a Lovecraftian scenario, I'm always trying to figure out what, what kind of novel thing can I bring to it. And, and for Night Floors, uh, most of the time when you write a Lovecraftian scenario, you, you're, you're searching for the bugaboo, and when you find it, it tries to eat you, and you come to some resolution. You know, you flee, you bury it, you put the elder sign on its crypt you you know but night floor is what i wanted was a very open-ended very um a scare fest you know put you in the monster and you see it and it's about getting out of the monster um and uh it, it you know felt unique when i was writing it at the time it was it was quite a quite a bit of fun so did you did you start with night floors and then wanted to con- um, expand on the King in Yellow for Delta Green, or was it just kind of like you had pieced together scenarios previously written? Oh no, no. So when I wrote when I wrote Night Floors, I originally envisioned it continuing forward um, because one of the elements of the King in Yellow is is it's it's I don't want to ruin anything for anybody at home, but Impossible Landscapes, um, the the King in Yellow mythos is a very different thing than a, than the Lovecraftian mythos. But the idea is once you're touched, there's really no escape. You, It's always part of your life. Um, it, it's not a physical threat. It's, it's almost a hovering, surreal disintegration of your world that goes on and on and on. And it can go slower almost, or it can go faster. Uh, well, it's like Freddy Krueger, right? I mean, in the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, it's a perpetual mind screw. Yeah, you're, you're kind of infected. And, and so the... I had already written notes for the follow-up scenario, um, I don't know, 15 years ago, and I just kind of went back to it. And it kind of just laid itself all out there. Now it's all based on John Tyne's um, chapter called um, The Haster Mythos in Delta Green Countdown. And he wrote kind of a breakdown. He said, here's an idea for a King Yellow campaign. And he wrote, you know, maybe 10 paragraphs on kind of, here's the structure without any of the real kind of meat on how to run it. And I was like, Night Floors was written to start that. Now I need to carry the players completely through um, to Carcosa and, and everything beyond. And, um, you know, I, I'm writing it for 
two and a half years and it takes forever to get it just right um, because it's this weird, weird recursive almost fractal of horror things reflect back on each other and and um, so I wrote a volume of Secret Faces um, the, the follow up scenario which is you know I'll give you the premise 20 years after the night floors the agents are reactivated uh, because at a Delta Green friendly psychiatric private facility where they stick agents um, uh, who go mad. Um, four agents have vanished, inscribing the yellow sign on the wall before they vanished. And they don't want to expose anyone new, so they reactivate the, the those who survived the night floors and send them into the psychiatric clinic to kind of figure out where these, these people went. So the, that's kind of the setup, and from there it's, you know, it goes far and deep. Um, and there, there's several other scenarios uh, in the book and they're all interconnected and if you run it beginning to end it's you know perhaps a, a couple uh, months of play um, and uh, you know I'm really excited I've run it twice and both times have gone in very different directions yeah Dennis uh, what sort of advice would you would you give someone uh, who is uh, interested in writing their own scenarios I know that uh, you must have some sort of creative process you go through when you sit down to, to put together these these things what would you uh, recommend for for a, a keeper like myself yeah um, so yeah it's it's usually the way the way I write these things is I work back from what are the cool points what are the bits of horror I want to show what are the what are the monster types I'm excited to kind of showcase um, so I'll come up you know I'll usually have a vision in my head of one or two sequences that are um, representative so for example I don't know if you guys are familiar with um, the scenario called Artifact Zero um, that I did for Delta Green I've heard of it I haven't so I'll, you know this won't ruin the scenario for any, anybody but basically Artifact Zero is about an archaeologist in Montana who is excavating a big site because they found some erratics in the ground and erratics are odd artifacts that are out of kind of their time placement in the geologic shape of the earth um, for example finding you know an arrow uh, an arrowhead in 10 million year old schist or something like that um, and uh, he's digging it up and what he finds is his own skeleton 11 and a half million years ago with a smashed titanium watch that's smeared in in the rock and uh, you know his skeleton is fossilized it has all the fillings and um, and that's the beginning of the scenario is he digs himself up basically and I, I had that moment in my head and I was like okay now how do I tie this to Delta Green to Majestic to you know and, and I worked back from that um, but the other really useful thing are mind mapping tools so little bubble uh, you know you, you put a little bubble and you connect it with a line a lot of computers have these mind map tools I use those extensively to kind of map out where the clues lead. And um, the last thing I'll say is I try and make as many interconnections as possible, no matter how obscure they might be, uh, between clues, because players often will miss like the giant highway of like, you should go this way. They'll just completely bypass that, you know? You know, like you have the guy in the house who has the weird colored eyes, who's chanting every night, and they're like, let's follow the paper boy. You know, that that's a classic player move. So adding in as many interconnections as possible with with good reason i mean don't just add them in they have to make sense but um try and find as many as you can are that's my highest level advice and then the last thing i'll say is start small and try and complete 
something front to back. So say do a little scenario like uh, a 10 page, here's the threat, here's what the guy's doing, here's their location, here's how to disrupt it, the end. Uh, don't try and go into a campaign first, you know what I mean? Um, try and start out in fits and starts. It's almost like writing a short story before you write a novel. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, been, I've been working on a, a couple of Cthulhu-like scenarios for my D&D group, so it's, uh, I've, I've encountered that myself trying to, to figure out how you get from point A to point B to point C in, in the most sort of efficient but uh, I guess somewhat logical manner. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough. And, you know, like I said, players sometimes won't see the thing that you think is blindingly obvious. Sometimes it's not as obvious as you think it is, you know. So finding a lot of different ways in is, is kind of key. Yeah, yeah. The, I, I've noticed that even just in, in some of the short scenarios we've played where the, the obvious clues are the ones they miss and then they're off on some tangent yeah, yeah. and then you're like, oh, now I've got to somehow bring them back and <laughs> yeah and, yeah. Uh, yeah so where would you recommend like a, a delta green noob like myself where would you recommend that someone like myself would begin um well we have a really a really cool product that's uh, pay what you want which is you know basically means free on drive through rpg you can literally just type in zero and get it for free and it has a it's called need to know delta green need to know and it has uh, the basics of the rules, it has an entire scenario, and it has six agents pre-made, and you can just sit down and play. You don't need any of the other books or anything like that. And uh, the scenario is, is nice and creepy and simple, and it kind of demonstrates what Delta Green's about. So I would recommend there to begin with. Um, and like I said, free to play, and I'll give you the link so maybe you can put it up and, you know, uh, anybody can check it out, but yeah, that's a great place to start. Yeah, absolutely. That link will definitely be available in the show notes. Um, but to go back on the history of you and Delta Green, as we know now, uh, Pagan Publishing is no more, but Delta Green eventually lived on with Arc Dream Publishing. Um, in a previous episode, we actually had the chance to interview Shane, and we got his perspective. But I'm curious, what's your side of the story, Dennis? <laughs> um, well, you know, I've always loved Delta Green. Um, you know, it's it's one of my favorite creations. Um, me, John, and Scott really kind of bled to get it to where it was. And I always felt it was a real shame. It was kind of left behind. And, you know, the, the other thing I'd always hear, which really kind of irked me, to be honest, is, you know, oh, Delta Green could never survive in the modern era with a cell phone. And, a, and I'm like, Jesus, people, don't you read Lovecraft? Like, you know, at the Mountains of Madness, what is, he, what is the main... He's flying around in a triplane with a radio in Antarctica... You know, like they're they're cutting edge modern Lovecraft. You know, his his protagonists are running around with the the best of the best of 1920s technology, um, and it, it makes no difference in the face of the great old ones. I mean, so that's kind of what I wanted to do with Delta Green. I wanted to bring it up to the modern era. I wanted to revive it. I wanted to see how far it could go because I I felt like gaming had shifted and I wasn't sure. Um, and when I mean shifted, I mean it had shifted. In the 90s, we'd struggle seven years to release a book, and then distributors would take all of our money, take all of our books, and never pay us. We literally made nothing off of Delta Green and Delta Green Countdown, or very, very little. Um, and Kickstarter and Patreon have really shifted that. So when I was still in video games, I said, you know, me and Shane basically said, okay, we're going to redo Delta Green 
uh, as its own kind of standalone because we feel it's deviating from uh, Call of Cthulhu enough. Call of Cthulhu has become much more about heroic point spend, save the world kind of stuff. And Delta Green is much more about uh, the horrific costs on your humanity of even knowing about these things. Uh, you know, so we wanted to build in things like lethality and uh, the new sanity system. We, you know, with bonds, we felt that reflected much more of what the game should be. So we put it together and uh, I did it in video games. I was in video games and I was working on this thing on the side and I was thinking, oh, it'll go to Kickstarter and it won't do very much. And it just exploded on Kickstarter. It went on Kickstarter and just blew the doors off and was just amazing. And I was like, wow, there's a huge call for this. And um, so I just slowly set about reorienting my life so that this would be my full-time thing because obviously the interest was there. Um, and that took a couple of years, but um, now we're here and it's been, you know, a good three years that I've been working on this stuff full-time and it's it's amazing. Yeah, it's really quite an incredible story to see the resurgence of this, you know, almost now, what, 25-year yeah, yeah. RPG? Yeah, it's, it's old. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, we always hear, whenever we talk to pros or anything who have worked on games, they always have kind words to say about Delta Green and Delta Green... The original 96, 97 Delta Green, you know, tops the RPG Net list of best games. Um, you know, it's out of 18,000. It's the number one rated. And Countdown is number two, I think. And uh, that's always great to see. Uh, but at the time, it was difficult to eat praise. You know, we had no food. We had no money. And there was no way to keep going. Um, so today, to see the fans kind of really gather around it, really kind of push it forward um is just great it just makes me so oh, it makes us happy that you're able to provide us with great games to play um so dennis um what what's kind of your process for uh, creating art for delta green do you kind of like have a a scene in your head that you want to depict or does it kind of come from the writing itself well um so i'm a, uh, you know I, I did book covers and comic books and you know studied professional illustration so Everything is really classical. Um, and what a lot of people don't understand is that pro illustrators like book covers and things you see, the old D&D book covers, they're, they're all photo sourced. People take a photo, they grid off the photo sometimes, sometimes they can just eyeball sketch it, but they're always referencing some source. And usually the Delta Green images are, you know, a half dozen reference images that I sketch together and then paint um, in oil. Uh, and that, you know, it takes quite a while. Um, but, you know, overall, uh, I usually have an idea in mind from the get-go of something creepy or something off um, that I want people to feel when they look at the image. That's basically what, what our, you know, illustration is, is you're trying to immediately transport someone to feel something you, you, you are kind of handing over in just this picture. Uh, you know, loneliness, uh, detachment, fear, uh, apprehensiveness, uh, confusion. You're trying to kind of immediately transmit this silently and that's you know that's always my goal is to do something with delta green it's always something off it's always something weird it's always something upsetting you mean it's always a creepy baby on the cover art <laughs> yeah 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 you know there, there's a lot of creepy babies sure but uh you know i think they're well they're well deserved i love the baby <laughs> oh man <laughs> uh that could be taken out of context that's okay. <laughs> They can't prove anything. <laughs> yeah, I love your art. I think it really, it really gives it that, that last needed thing 
that completes the the feeling of the scenarios for Delta Green. Um, did you do the cover for the Labyrinth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that one's really just outstanding. I love that. Oh, one. thank you. Yeah, no, I did. I did all the art for Delta Green all together. Um, so every book, every, and um, this is something else that wouldn't be possible previously. Um, you know, it's something I always wanted to do, but, you know, we couldn't really afford to do it. And a lot of game books, the reason they look so haphazard and strange is you have 15 artists doing stuff and the art director can only wrangle so much. Um, so you don't get a consistent look and I hate that. So with Delta Green, I had a very clear look, um, you know, this photorealistic, messy paint stuff. Um, and that's kind of what I want to get across. So, you know, I love painting. Um, but you know, most of the time I'm writing or designing, so it's, it's quite nice to, um, to take a break and paint. <laughs> have you ever, um, have you ever considered, uh, maybe doing a Delta Green movie? I know Adam Scott Glancy recently tried and unfortunately the Kickstarter, uh, it wasn't funded in time, but is that something that, that you'd be interested for the future? Well, we, we, um, the, the Delta Green property has always been optioned um, since its birth. Um, so originally, the first option was by Gail Ann Hurd, uh, who was co-producer and co-writer of The Terminator and uh, The Walking Dead and such. And that went nowhere. Um, you know, it was pitched in Hollywood and, um, and is currently being pitched in Hollywood and, you know, has been continuously for 10 years. So not holding my breath. Um, but it, it does seem like it should be happening. Um, you know, Lovecraft has taken a swing towards the more popular. A lot of stuff's just not very good, you know. Um, there's a lot of horror out there that's just eh. Um, and TV seems to be a, an endless open maw for um, ongoing, you know, content. So having a new horror series that would be dark and evil. I think I described it as the X-Files, except every episode... Mulder and Scully are dead and you have to come find them. It's just a new Mulder and Scully. <laughs> um, you know. I'd watch um, that, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, I'd, lo I'd, lo I'd love to see that. Um, so, totally so yeah, awesome. I mean, the answer is we've always considered it. Uh, it's always been actively pitched for both video games and, and movies and TV. It has gained some traction in the last couple of years, so you never know. But Well, Dennis, on the subject of um, video games and Lovecraft, I feel that a lot of um, games centered around the Lovecraft mythos kind of miss the point of the Lovecraft mythos. What are, what are your feelings about that? They definitely do. I, you know, so much so I've, I've never, and I've played games extensively, as you can imagine, um, you know, 15 years in video games. I've played every Lovecrafting game that's come out, and um, Eternal Darkness is probably the closest I've ever seen to a semi-Lovecraft game. Um, but, you know, even the things that they call Cthulhu, uh, the more recent games are just shooters. Um, they just... They don't know what to do with Lovecraft, and the answer, the the reason they they, they have such a hard time with it, is um, there are no win conditions in Lovecraft. You cannot win. Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, Delta Green. That's why we moved all the metering in Delta Green. The win condition is you are sane. Yeah, you survive. You, you, you survived, and your family is not damaged. That's it. Um, and you know, to every video game designer, the win condition is I killed the big squid thing they can't they, they can't help but think that <laughs> yeah do you think that's a problem with uh video games as a medium as like 
you're kind no. of you're meant to be more empowered when playing a video game. Or is no, that... no, no. And in fact, I think if you if you built a truly Lovecraftian experience in say, um, uh, you know, I worked at a company called Hairbrain Schemes, and they did um, Shadowrun, the the point and click Shadowrun games, Shadowrun Dragon. Uh, Missed those. They games. do. Yeah, they're really cool games. Um, if they did a Lovecraftian game, it would be good. You know, it's a story-based game. It's a, it's about personal degeneration and changing and and that kind of stuff. It can't be, a, I have this pistol, and then I have a semi-automatic pistol, and then I have a submachine gun, and then I have a bazooka, and I'm fighting Cthulhu now. It just And that's the default. Um, it's not really video games' fault. It's more um, uh, the market is crying for it, and a lot of designers will listen to the market, not, not what they should be building you know, based on their gut. I know uh, one of our uh, one of our co-hosts, man from Lang, uh, has been streaming a, a recent Lovecraftian game, and uh, uh, he's uh, he said that the uh, the tentacles are and the just the entire game is just right in your face with the tentacles and just the the blatant. Yeah, yeah it's no it's, it's no fun. I mean, what what you want is you know ninety minutes of tension. And, and eight minutes of solid terror. You don't want <laughs> 90 minutes of monsters and you know eight minutes of sitting in a room selecting boxes to find clues. And it, it's completely reversed, you know, what, what, what they do. And I've played, you know, the, there have been a couple mod, there have been two Cthulhu branded releases in the last know, 10 years. And, you know, people really liked the last one and I just didn't. Yeah. It- I have to agree. It, it it just misses the whole point of um, being, uh, you know, being completely helpless, which is kind of kind of the whole point of a Lovecraftian experience. Yeah, um, yeah. Without without the core of humanity is is com- essentially useless. Um, you know, it's not a Lovecraftian joint, and that's kind of where all these games fall short. I mean, uh, like Alien Isolation is a great example. Of you know the concept, the core concept of Lovecraftianism is there, but then it falls apart. It's all about how do I win? Um, you know, more weapons, more places, more tricks, more traps, and it's that's not what it should be about. Um, and it's really hard. I mean, building a, a truly Lovecraftian video game would be an extremely difficult undertaking, but it, heck, it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I can imagine it would be difficult to say the least because you'd have to you have to get so many things right. For it to feel Lovecraftian without it yeah. feeling um, frustrating. Yeah. Have you ever played? Have you ever played um, Torment? The uh, Planescape. Uh, it sounds game? familiar. Oh, that's a classic. Yeah, I played that's it years a classic, ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's an old, it's an old point and click game. Um, much more like that. It would have to be story based. It would have to be very rich in, in branching paths. Characters would have to kind of slowly fall into insanity and change and. You know, it's very, very difficult to, to imagine, but you know, it's certainly possible. So you'd uh, you you talked a little bit about uh, about uh, Lovecraft's resurgence in 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 uh, lately, and I mean, I've seen it in in video games and and books, and whenever I go to the bookstore, there seems to be new Lovecraft editions there, and then we've had the. Uh, I think it was the Sinking City, and then recently they released Stygian uh, came out recently but it seems like every time they talk about Lovecraft now they can't seem to avoid talking about his racism either is that a 
how do you feel about that? Like personally, I, I just sort of, I'm like, he was a racist. Yes. But you know, that doesn't, uh, it doesn't negate everything that he's done or the, the atmosphere that he created. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a couple of different ways I, res- I usually respond to that. I mean, one, he was an absolute racist beyond all belief. Like, you know, he's not a human being I would like to associate with. He's a pretty horrible person on a lot of different fronts. I read all of his letters. I understand everything pretty much published about him. Um, he's not a nice guy. He's a misanthrope. He was, you know, um, he was a self-directed outsider who hated everybody, basically. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, there's a there's a couple things I always caveat. Um I, you know, I say up front, like, that people will get really upset about Lovecraft dealing with, say, um, the people from uh, Ponape and, you know, I- implying that, uh, you know, you know uh, uh, people who worship the Great Old Ones are always subhuman and this kind of stuff. The, you know, and what I usually say to that is Lovecraft, you know, ironically, Lovecraft undermined everything. Western science, white, you know, white European science is useless in the face of anything he created so he kind of undermined himself um which i I really love and you know the horrors of innsmouth are you know white people horrors they're 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 degenerate you know horrible alien interbreeding terrible you know creatures from beneath the sea but they're new englanders they're you know it's this crazy thing but the other thing i'll say is lovecraft never made a penny off of any of his more horrible ideas or even his good ideas. Um, he, you know, he died penniless and never really significantly made anything in his life from any of this work. So it's not like we're rewarding him now by enjoying the concept of a Lovecraftian universe. And then the last thing I'll say is that the concept of a Lovecraftian universe is just associated with him. It existed long before him. Arthur Machen and other writers wrote about an uncaring you know, maw of, of existence that just gobbles up everything long before Lovecraft. Lovecraft just kind of absorbed it. And then the real shtick for Lovecraft was he wrote a bunch of his friends and said, let's all share this. That's it. That's, that's his big contribution. Yeah. He was just an organizer, Uh, a hype man, really. He, (laughs) he was, he, he liked writing letters and he got a lot of people together and they all started writing short stories that kind of shared similar elements like the Necronomicon and, and, you know, um, but but the biggest thing I'll say, um, above all, is Lovecraft was an awful, awful person. Uh, and the best way to kind of come to grips with his creations is to see how well they're being used today to kind of undo any of the horrors he really was for. I mean, there, there's a huge push in diversity everywhere in gaming and writing and and, you know, women and, and uh, people of color writing these things are commonplace today. Um, and like I said, it's not like if you write a Lovecraftian story or something with Cthulhu, um, some white supremacist somewhere gets a nickel. It's not like that. Um, his stuff is open and has been co-opted by the right people. Um, and that, that makes me happy. And it's kind of a nice little dance on his grave kind of situation. Because in all honesty, he's not... He's not. A, when you read his letters, he's a pretty awful person. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really appreciate. I, I mean, I think you raise a lot of good points. I, I guess my my concern is that it's like I think it was the the review of Stygian uh, was the one where it really stood out to me, where it was just like, 
it seemed like it that the whole review just hinged on that on on the lovecraft is a racist without any of the context that i mean that you've just provided and it and i th- i'm a f- i fear that that sort of that's the sort of thing that will stick in people's minds when they when they read these things they'll just be like oh okay well now i can just dismiss it out of hand without understanding the the context behind it or how you know modern society has really subverted a lot of the ideas that he he has yeah i mean i think yeah yeah i mean there's a couple ways to look at this um there will always be people who you know tend to kind of uh put things in a box and fire it into the sun as i say um just because it upsets them and that they kind of want to they want to spread that point of view there's really nothing to be done there you just have to kind of go, well, you know, that's that's what you think, and I'm going to keep doing this. We've gotten some hate mail for, you know, Delta Green in the past, and I've always found it very confusing um, because it's, you know, a lot of the stuff we're writing in Delta Green is factual history. Yeah. Like, absurdly factual. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we'll, yeah, we'll get complaints about, like, well, you know, the Hmong people didn't do this, and, like, yes, they did, and here's the reference, and... Here's the book on army tactics in Vietnam that says this was, you know. So, you know, sometimes the arguments are very strange there. And then other times we'll literally say, like, the Chocho people are not people. They are not human. They have not been human for 10 centuries. They are, they are a servitor race of the great old ones. They are, if you took a genetic test, there'd be very little left in them that looked anything like a human. And then we make them in these horrible cultists and people are like, how can you condemn an entire fictional people yeah like, well what you call horrible we call subservient so i <laughs> know <laughs> right, right. right, like you know they're they're aliens they're here to destroy the world and mm. you uh, say destroy you know. and we say recreate <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you know but they'll say similar things about the deep ones you know how can you condemn an entire people and it's like it's it's a story about alien creatures trying to you know consume the world and the people it just won't click um so I guess my big thing there is engaging on that. If the person is, you know, uh, adversarial, there's really no point. It doesn't it doesn't help anybody's situation. There's going to be no resolution. They've already kind of decided it's a thing. Um, even if you're very careful, it still comes up, I guess, is my point. And Lovecraft was not careful at all. Uh, in fact, if anything, he was you know openly provocative in his writing. Well, I think the I th- so far the men from Lang have been relatively unscathed. So <laughs> again, not human. That's right. <laughs> so Dennis, we had um, we kind of chatted before we started recording about a um, Call of Cthulhu scenario that you had written in set in the Dreamlands. Can you? Um, oh yeah, yeah. It's not a not really a scenario. It's a whole campaign. Um, so uh, it's called uh, The Sense of the Sleight of Hand Man, and it's available at arcdream.com. And it's, it's, an, it's basically um, your player characters begin as opium and heroin addicts in New York in the 1920s, and you're given a strange dose of opium and wake in new bodies in the dreamlands. You kind of have to find your way out while you're hunted by uh, some force in the dreamlands that, that wants to consume you. Um, and it was quite fun to write. I, I kickstarted in 2014, 2015, and it did really well. It was up for a silver any for best writing. Oh, nice. I think. Didn't win. Yeah, too bad. Do you have um? But, do you have any plans to perhaps convert a campaign like that into Delta Green or? 
No, not you know it's 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 such a different feel that I think it, it fits really well with um, the Call of Cthulhu rules as they stand. Um, and uh, yeah, no, no, I mean um, we we have some plans for uh, the Delta Green, the Dreamlands and Delta Green are very strange, um, and they're a thing we've been discussing at length, and they're nothing like the standard Dreamlands. Um, and you know, we have a lot of thoughts there, but it'll be its own book at some point in the future. Very I cool. Think. Um, do you did you have any um, did you have any hands on the fall of Delta Green project with uh, Pelgrim Press or yeah 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 so um, Ken Height uh, Shane Ivy and I wrote the history chapter uh, for the Delta Green Handlers Guide and then um, Ken basically went off and uh, he wanted to make a game that was set back when Delta Green thought that they could bring this all under control. Uh, so the early 60s, they were just kind of like, well, yeah, sure, communism will crush communism, and then we'll stop the great old ones, and then we'll go to the moon and, you know, colonize the solar system. No problem. Uh, and we, it's a very different feeling. Um, so, you know, Ken worked very hard on that, and, you know, we reviewed and, and changed content and kind of worked with him on making it all line up. Um, but basically, you know, we, we wrote a lot of content together for the Handler's Guide, and that's where all this stuff kind of came from. And did you did you do any of the art for no, Fall of Delta Green? No. no, that was through Pelgrim Press. That's all. That's all Pelgrim. I was swamped doing the Handler's Guide at the time. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I love the way the layout of their book looks. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it we great. hired her. The woman who did the layout for that, uh, Jen, is she's doing all the props for Impossible Landscapes, the new King and Yellow campaign. Oh, very nice. Um, do you have any uh, information that you can share about that campaign in terms of release sure. date or? Anything like sure. that? Uh, impossible landscapes. Uh, so, so the there's a couple. Sorry, that was my email just beeped. Um, there's, there's a couple uh, things to kind of go over. Uh, at Arc Dream, we 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 suffer under the yoke of the pagan publishing. This book is not done until this book is done. That that is our mantra. That is our life. That is it's carved in my forehead backwards. So I see it on the the mirror every morning. <laughs> um, so when these books are done, you know, we know. Uh, we just wrapped John Tynes' Labyrinth, um, which is the, a new Delta Green book with a bunch of antagonists and protagonists for your Delta Green campaign. It's awesome. I love it. I finished the art. It's all ready for layouts being laid out now. Impossible Landscapes is in edit, which means Shane Ivey is crawling through it with a, a, a big red pen and making my life miserable. Um, <laughs> And then we will get together, just like we did on the Handler's Guide, and literally crawl line by line through the book, yelling at each other on voice chat um, until it's perfect. So um, when it'll be done, probably the manuscripts will be done by December. Um, the art is almost done. So when the manuscript's done and the art is done, it will go to layout, and that's usually about a month. Uh so, you know, I'd expect to see it at the end of winter, something like that, maybe. Uh, Labyrinth will be much sooner. Labyrinth, the layout will be done in a week or two, and it will go to press shortly thereafter. Very cool. Um, and then you, you mentioned uh, props for Impossible Landscapes? Yeah, you know, just um, player handouts. So um, invitations and the things you read in Night Floors and you went, what? what is that he's describing 
the, those are all provided now as a piece of art that you can show your players. Oh, nice. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's kind of one thing that I've always um, not been disappointed with, but uh, have uh, have wanted in Delta Green Games is more handouts. So that's very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're working really hard to kind of make sure that's the standard going forward. But it takes it takes a lot of work. Yeah, and it's really just basically the three of you, right? As far as like who works on all this stuff every day, um, it's me and Shane. You know, uh, everybody else is is kind of brought in as needed. So uh, Ken Hyde or Adam Glancy or or Greg Stolte, you know, they they're very they do very specific things. But it's me and Shane are on the you know, at the front of the fire base every morning, <laughs> picking people off, trying to crawl through the wire. <laughs> you guys are really transparent too, though, about the, your projects and like the, you know, the process, uh, you even give the fans a little, little pieces here and there. It's uh, it's really neat to see the, the process as it happens. And I can't think of another game company that, that has that kind of transparency. Um, you and Shane, work on a ton of projects i heard you guys are doing a 5e yeah yeah shane wrote these really cool 5e scenarios there two of them are out right now and they they have a third one on the way um and they're they're just awesome i've run them they're really fun uh it's very it's very um sword and sorcery very conan bronze age type stuff Uh, but it's awesome and it's kind of like a re re reimagining without any mechanical changes of classic D&D monsters. So ghouls and doppelgangers. And yeah, it's really cool. I, I love what he did there. But that's more of a hobby. Delta Green is kind of more of the focus. Um, but yeah, I, I love that But stuff it's too. not Lovecraftian D&D stuff? It's... No, no. No, not really. I mean, you know, there there's some... You know, we, we can't fully escape the Arc Dream field. Yeah, the first scenario in that campaign, uh, Sea Demon's Gold, um, to kind of briefly summarize, there's a portion of that scenario where the players actually end up in an underwater city, which is, it's really cool, and it's just for, uh, you know, just for a first-level scenario that's, like, a really vast uh, undertaking between the difference of, like, go kill the rats in the basement, or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go yeah. step in the yawning portal or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's it's and what I like about that one is it's it's much more of a interact with the undersea people as opposed to like kill everything and take their stuff. Yeah, I really liked that. Like you actually get to yeah. like go into the city and talk to the yeah. various political leaders. It was really interesting. Yeah, it's it's definitely Shane Shane's really talented at that stuff and I really I really like the direction he was taking with these books. Um and we don't know what we're going to do with them. We we may just collect them all into one 128-page book and Put it up for pre-order mm-hmm. um you know as opposed to the little scenarios it's hard to tell what's super profitable um they're, they're doing well they review well uh, but you know there's nothing compared to delta green uh, delta green just kind of blows them out of the water so our focus kind of has to be on delta green um but you know it, it's fun to have hobbies on the side mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and and just kind of gives you a different outlet to you know yeah yeah it feels very different um, and, you know, speaking of which, we have another game that we, me and Shane helped create way back when called Godlike. I don't know if you know about it. I've heard of it, yeah. Oh, yeah, yes, so it's, yes. it's, uh, it's World War II you know, or something? yeah, the, the, the shortest pitch I know is um, it's Saving Private Ryan meets X-Men. So, you know, you can lift a tank, but you're not bulletproof. You get your head blown off just like everybody else. Um, so it's a very dark, uh, very realistic superhero World War II game. Um, 
and we may have another edition of that coming out since uh, Punching Fascists has come back in style. <laughs> so. You could get a very Hellboy uh, experience playing that game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun game. Really nice nice mechanics by Greg. Yeah, speaking of um, meat and potatoes games for you guys, uh, you guys recently also did WrestleNomicon as yeah, well. Yeah, yep. that was really fun. Yeah, yeah. so that's a, a Great Old Ones wrestling card game. Um, Rob Rob Heinsu, uh designed it, and uh, um, Shane and I wrote it, and Kirk Komoda, who's just this amazing artist, did all the really kick-ass art. Yeah, the art is hilarious. If anyone hasn't seen it, <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. It's it's beer and pretzels kind of wrestling game. Um, but tongue in cheek. <laughs> yeah, very tongue in cheek. Uh, mm-hmm. We also had a chance to discuss with Shane a little bit about Zero Sum, the Delta Green card game that you guys had kind Ooh. of put on the back burner. Do you have any uh, additional thoughts about that, uh, Dennis? I'd love to have time to do it. Uh, <laughs> if we do do it, it will be post Impossible Landscapes. Um, the design for it was pretty straightforward, um, you know, but it's a lot of work. Um, testing and, and kind of art and but the whole idea of the card game was basically you put down a threat and then you have a bunch of options to kind of um, you're trying to draw loops um, these cards have arrows on them that you know turn left turn right split into two that kind of stuff so you start with a threat and you try and draw a loop around to kind of close it off um, you know so um, and you know you have agents in play to start playing these cards you could lose agents and people can play together and we had a decent idea of how it would run but none of the balanced cards or anything like that um so yeah there's a lot of work ahead of us we're going to do that wrestlenomicon's done uh it's going to press uh, so this one zero sum just kind of sat on the back burner uh we'll see where it goes but i, I still like the idea it was it it was going to be a co-op yeah yeah it it could basically the design you could play with you know up to four people at the same time and they could take over investigations it was all about basically you're playing the full conspiracy so you'd get a threat card like um the reaper of souls would show up you have to close this in six cards or it breaks wider and you put down another threat you know so you're always constantly putting agents in play and you know, uh, putting cards in play like surveillance team or, um, you know, it's in a book and, you know, it's the guy reading Nakanomicon. And you're just trying to kind of close these loops um, uh, without it breaking wider. And every time you fail to close the loop in the number of cards, you put down another threat that has to be closed. Um, so it's this kind of ever-expanding infection of, of unnatural stuff was the, the generic idea. So beyond uh, Delta Green and the stuff that you do for Arc Dream Publishing, Dennis, are there any other uh, personal projects that you take on if you have any free time left over in the day? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, there's there's a couple things. So um, uh, one thing is I'm writing. I'm in the midst of writing um, several books. This sounds really weird, uh, saying it out loud. So I'm <laughs> I'm uh, 115,000 words into a book called There Were Giants in Those Days, which is a an examination of superhuman talents in World War II combat, which is written as if people flying and lifting tanks and stuff was completely boring and conventional by the time this book was written. So when you read it, it's, you know, and then this guy could fly. But it's a it's a historical examination of superhumans in World War II. It's based in the world of godlike. Um, 
and it's huge uh, and it's just getting bigger. So every time I get bored doing what I'm doing, I go over that and write some more. Um, and I have uh, two other books that are underway. One um, is called Panopticon, um, uh, which is a weird futuristic novel. And the other is a horror novel uh, based on a short story I wrote called Lithic, um, which is a weird Lovecraftian tale. Um, and that's that's getting pretty big now. That's in the 30 or 40,000 word range. Uh, Panopticon somewhere in the 55,000 word range. So I'm always writing. I'm always doing stuff. Uh, I literally hang out with my kids and my wife, play video games, write, paint, take a nap, go for a walk. That's my But day. not Lovecraftian video games, right? Well, every time I play them, they're sitting <laughs> So, uh, yeah, no, I play them, uh, but I'm always going into them kind of like, oh, crap, this is going to suck. And they do. (laughs) I mean, they're probably fine as just a normal video game. It's just when they're like the first licensed Lovecraft video game, which is dumb in and of itself, uh, considering Lovecraft's all public domain. Um, And then you sit down and play, you're like, what the hell is this? Why do I have a flamethrower? You know? (laughs) Well, uh, Dennis, we're going to start wrapping things up. Thank you so much for being here uh, and joining us for this interview. Sure. It was fantastic. No, it's been great. Um, any uh, any last things that you want to uh, Yeah, so starting tomorrow uh, in the bundle of holding, there are going to be two Delta Green bundles going up. Uh, you guys know what the bundle of holding is, right? Yeah, uh, that's drive drive through, right? Yeah, so yeah, uh, Alan Varney runs this really cool you know, um, almost charity that, you know, uh, a chunk of the whatever's raised goes to this charity. And um, we're going to human, we're giving our, our, our um, charity portion to Human Rights Watch. Um, but it collects a bunch of PDFs uh, into kind of a decent price, like it really lowers the price. Um, so if you're really interested in getting into Delta Green, uh, these, this is going to be a great opportunity to get all the PDFs much cheaper. Um, and uh, it'll it'll be available starting tomorrow, and I'll I'll send you guys the link so you can put it in the um, the notes. How long is that going to be available for, Dennis? Until October twenty eighth, okay. so it'll run from the eighth to the twenty. Very cool. And yeah. and Dennis, um, if people want to find out more about you and Delta Green, where can they where can they find that information? Um, well, following me on Twitter is always really good. Um, I'm drgonzo at one two three. So. Uh, Dr. Gonzo123 on Twitter and um, follow me there and you want to ask me questions or, or poke around, usually there's an answer there and I talk about art and design and, and living the uh, weird artist's life way out on an island in the middle of nowhere um, and uh, <laughs> if you find that kind of stuff interesting um, I, I have a fun time arguing with people on there, I really love Twitter I'm like one of four people I know who like Twitter <laughs> uh, everybody else is like it's constantly attacking me and I'm like it's an inert piece of technology you can block anybody it's really easy um, so you know come out there and give me a shout uh, arcdream.com is always a good place to look at what we're up to right now um, and our Facebook pages for arcdream and delta green uh, RPG are also very popular awesome so coming next is the labyrinth right that's the next release yep Yep, and we're really, uh, we also have several small scenarios coming out, so we're never stopping. We have uh, a new short scenario for Delta Green called Ex Oblivion, which is 
really fun. Uh, fully illustrated coming out in a little booklet. And then we have Shane's new scenario called Hourglass, which is coming out in a little booklet as well. Um, so Labyrinth, those two, and then uh, Possible Landscapes. And we also have an unannounced title, which I'll announce here. We have a, we're going to be collecting, just like we collected our scenario books, into a hardcover for A Night at the Opera previously. We collected four or five scenario books and put them in there. We're going to be doing that again in a new book called Delta Green Black Sites. Ah, cool. Which will collect all those. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll put it in there, and I'm working on the cover right now for that. Well, very cool, Dennis. Well, thanks for coming on to the show. We appreciate it. Oh, no, thanks for having me. And and as always, this has been the Great Old Ones Gaming Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, lost in time and space. I'm Man from Lang, host of the Whisper in Darkness YouTube channel. I'm Innkeeper Vase Odin from the Twisted Tentacle Inn. I'm Dennis Detler, um, some weird guy who does Lovecraftian stuff occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I have a really hard time taking myself seriously. I had a conversation with a lady yesterday where she's like what do you do for a living and I'm like oh god I can't I just like walked away from her